Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome, welcome to, to the, the arbitration, arbitration station. station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Joel Dahlquist this time. And I'm Sadia Petit. And we are your co-hosts for yet another season of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% vague lockdown restrictions. Exactly. Across the world, inconsistent restrictions and implementations across the world, canceled plans, all fits in that 1%. On that note, where in the world are we, Brian? We are in London, in the sheet offices, speaking of re- regulations. Maybe the first or last time we'll be at these offices. Exactly. Um, at the time that we're recording this, we were told yesterday to go and work from home again. But it's kind of loose indication of, you know, you should work from home, of course, if you can. Yeah. But we had planned to meet up, all the three of us, together, right? Yes. So we were just like, come on. We're still going to do this. What is essential work, if not podcasting? <laughs> exactly. We haven't sat down in the same room for more than six months. Definitely. That oh applies to most people in my life, I should say. <laughs> I can't remember. That's true. <laughs> Last time I met most people. I can't believe that. It's been six months. And then our regulations are for another six months, so it could be exactly a so. while. But we're here. I mean, the last time we were talking, I was sitting on my bed in full lockdown. And now we're finally <laughs> together again. So there is a bit of a difference. Exactly. And I was actually very saddened to miss the last episode. But it was kind of, a, like we say, a parallelisme des formes in France. Like, I missed the first episode of the last season and the last episode of the last season. Oh, there we go. Full but circle. now I'm here. The first episode <laughs> of this new season. Hopefully, we'll be there also the last episode. So what have you been up to since our last season? Oh, well, I guess like everyone, like figuring out how to work from home and remain sane. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, um, getting used to the new normal, I guess, like uh, everyone else. So it kind of feels almost normal now to work from home, which is a bit concerning, isn't it? Yeah, getting your lighting right on your virtual recordings and <laughs> conferences and interviews. and <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, what about you, Joel? Same, I guess. I've had it a bit more complicated. I think we, we managed to get that in the last episode, or one of the last episodes that I relocated from New York, and uh, I have since been in Sweden, and now I'm in London. So I, I have, for better or for worse, been traveling more than most people. Now I plan to stay in London for the time being, sit this out. See yeah. what happens. I've also actually been working, and uh, successfully so, I want to say. I had a few hearings, one very long one in particular that took three weeks, uh, which was a joy to do remotely, although I would have enjoyed to do it in person, of course, even more. But I was pleasantly surprised by how how easy it was. How was that logistically with the screens and the it was we, we It was an exit hearing, and we were fortunate to have... Uh, the parties made sure that we had an external provider helping us with everything. So we got rental packages shipped mm-hmm. out and very good assistance from this provider. 
so I had a bunch of screens and everything, you know, live transcription. It was also in two languages, so there was interpretation, a lot of witnesses, and we had a few dry runs and we prepped for weeks. But once we got going, it ran basically without a, an issue for three weeks. Wow! And how did um, like witness interviews or witness examinations? Really good too. Uh, witnesses were spread out. The, the major issue which we made uh, have addressed on the podcast was time zone, mm-hmm. basically. And I, right. we have other, I'm more hearings coming up where that is also an issue. The primary issue really to figure out like who, who is going to have to either get up very early or go to bed very late. Mm-hmm. Yes. In big international cases, it's hard to avoid if you're doing it remotely and everyone isn't flying into one and the same location. But it was good. That was on Zoom. On Zoom? Yeah. What has been your, I know we had, we've had what conferences and hearings, all of us now. Zoom, kudos, Google, Hangout, Google, Actually, Home, the, Webex, Office, Go2. Yeah, Webex. I um, I had, a, I mean, not a really recurring, a procedural hearing. Um, also, exactly, it was Webex. And I thought it worked really well, actually. I think yeah. Zoom is my favorite. Really? Yeah. But what's the deal with the confidentiality? Are we still talking about this? Or are we all content that it's fine now? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. None of us knows, I guess. <laughs> I cannot profess to have any idea. But I, I think they're more or less the same. Okay. And I know that it was some issue. I heard this, not with our case, but it was general talk that Zoom was not initially approved by the World Bank when the pandemic started. But then apparently it was at some point. So I guess the World Bank did something to okay. make sure that it worked. And I now have the sense that you could use basically any platform. For hearings and for conference, obviously, it's mm-hmm. it's all the same. Yeah, but I have I have a little folder on both my iPad and my phone now for just like conferencing software. I think I have nine or ten apps <laughs> depending on yeah what do you need. Yes, yeah. need. exactly. <laughs> Sometimes all at the same time, also depending on what you're doing. Have you you've had a, you've set up a couple of conferences and talks? Yeah, there. actually, I did. That's true. A lot of conferences at the beginning were kind of postponed, but now they're just happening all the time by uh, webinars. So different. It's a, it's a fun thing because it's a lot of logistics to plan an international conference, right? To have people from all over the world. Yeah. And in fact, we were very lucky to have someone called Jewel Dalkis <laughs> attend to one of our Pakistani conferences on careers and arbitration. That was really great. Um, so it was it was amazing to be to have you know people connect from all over the world. There was a another one recent one with different representative of arbitral institutions, and again like have them all sit in a room together physically is tough. You know, I mean it happens at Uncertrol and stuff, but I guess in other conferences, especially now, I mean I think we can't expect this to happen anytime soon. Before no, but I think years. I think you're right. Before it would always be like of last resort, we'll have someone call in or. Oh, you don't. If you can't make it, then you're not coming. Mm-hmm. And now everyone's able to attend attendees and also people that are speaking or counsel or you know if you have kind of if you were third chair on a case, maybe you would go to the hearing and maybe you wouldn't. Now it's no cost to the firm or the client for you to attend. Yeah, and you can uh, attend things on the side a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I log in once or twice a week. It feels like, and sometimes I'm really paying attention the same way I would have if I had been in the room, but sometimes I have it on in the background while I'm doing some tedious task and then I'm just checking in every few minutes when I hear something that's kind of democratized the, the conference circuit. Yeah, you don't have to definitely. travel. Have you networked with someone who was also attending at a conference where you were not speaking? 
not 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 a new person. Sometimes I know that someone that I know is in the audience, and I might yeah. write to them like separately on WhatsApp or something. That's right. why, are okay. you listening in? But no, I've I've been thinking about that. I, a more professional networker would have done something at this point, like a regular, I don't know, happy hour arbitration circuit. Some. The reason why I was asking was because, in fact, there's a, a, a webinar. I think. T- um, tomorrow, um, and I forget which one it is, I think it's one organized by um, the Asia-Pacific chapter of ICA, um, and they have sent me a um, link to connect 15-20 minutes before, and there's going to be like a virtual chat room for people to network before the actual conference oh, wow. starts, right? And I'm not, so I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not a speaker in this conference, so it's kind of really f- to encourage people to, to network. Because that's what we're missing, obviously. Yeah, the informal that's the thing. Talk yes, to people. Yes. That's what I miss during the hearing as well. Uh, especially when, since I don't work for a council team, being able to chit chat to the arbitrators and have mm-hmm. that sort of informal, you know, coffee machine talk. That's what we have now, just rationalized away, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm. Well, at least we have the podcast, which could always have been done remotely, and now we can sit in the room for now and continue it on for this new season. Number five. Number five. Insane. Close close to my goal of how many episodes I'd like to have, but um, <laughs> we're well on our way. And this season um, will be a similar format because we have the three of us. We have our researchers still that are involved and we have our editor. Um, but we will be changing this season versus last season in terms of maybe having more speakers than we did last season. We have a few people lined up. Again, going to your point about how it's easier to get people involved. Um, we, we plan to have a few more interviews this season, which would be nice. And we always get asked that question. What are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And it was always attend conferences more. And, and we did have that with Ika, but I guess interviews with different topics and also different, um, profiles, I guess will be what we're going to focus on. My standard answer to that question, what do you want to do? Or what are you going to do next? has always been bringing more people who aren't necessarily arbitration lawyers and, do more of the arbitration book club because that's my favorite project. And we've only done two segments. Neither of those two things have happened so far, but maybe but they were hits both. Yes, that is true. But maybe season five is the <laughs> season where we get some more non-arbitration lawyers in to talk about arbitration and we resume the book club. Yes. That sounds like a good idea since people will be reading a lot more <laughs> during these times. Yeah. Are reading more. And I think that people are also thinking of ways, you know, like um, to incorporate other fields of study in here. I'm talking under your, you know, academic presence <laughs> of like, you know, integ- integrating like sociological or philosophical aspects to the study of arbitration more maybe than before. I don't know, people are being more creative in their writing. I've seen some, some stuff that, that's interesting. So we'll talk about more, I think, with our guests coming in in the next season. There's also been no shortage of news during COVID that was right. not, you know, just related to COVID. I mean, you know, if you just looked at GAR and the main, you know, IU reporter, of course, uh, there's been so many developments in, over the last few months. Yes. It's going to be hard for us to cover everything in this first episode. I think it's like TV production where everything was recorded before, like all these cases were already in their phase of drafting the award. And so these awards were coming out while we were in lockdown. The arbitrators had more time to write the awards. Um, but now it'll be interesting to see since, well, I, maybe in like a year or two. When the cases may have died down, what's gonna? What's the news gonna be in a year or two? Maybe it won't be as rich. Um, but what do we have this episode? Our inaugural episode. Well, I will start with the first one, just talking about all these COVID and lockdown restrictions and being in the news. 
um, what we have titled Bojo's War on International Law, um, which has to do with um, the new internal markets bill that was um, presented to the House of Commons um, to discuss um, trade-related policies within the UK after the UK's withdrawal from the European Union, which will take place at the first of the year. Um, So we will talk about the uh, legal implications of that bill and how it affects um, the the Irish protocol, but also um, it's the UK's relationship with the EU. Um, So that will be the first topic. Did you print those uh, Article 27 Vienna Convention t-shirts that you promised us? (laughs) No, but I did print the Article 62 (laughs) t-shirts. So uh, we'll be wearing those. You can't see them, unfortunately. Oh, that is another thing that we might be doing, which is introducing video um, to this season before we move on to the second um, topic. Um, We were thinking because we do record remotely through Skype that we may be able to record video and then be producing that as kind of parallel content for those people that are more visually inclined mm-hmm. um, and, and like to see our faces when we speak. And to live stream them so people can also send us questions live. Yes. are thinking about this as Which well. would be great, but also scary. <laughs> <laughs> Second uh, segment, Sadia? Second segment. So there's been a lot of discussion over the summer about these um, renewable energy cases. Um, so we, I believe we've speaking, spoken about those before, but um, it's good to just have a roundup of what has been going on over the last few months. So I'm going to be speaking about whether Romania and Ukraine are the new Spain, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and for happy fun time, I don't know about you guys, but I have finished the internet and I am now re-watching <laughs> reality TV from like 2009 because I'm done with everything else. So I have in discussions over the last few months with various people started casting the movie about investor state dispute settlement. Wow. The ISDS movie. So we'll go through the cast. Still no uh, no plot, uh, no script. <laughs> There's not even a synopsis of a plot, but we do have a very Extensive cast. Yes, we can make the movie poster. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's all that matters, right? <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to that because I found that conversation quite yeah. interesting. We can't wait! Fun. Can't wait to hear about that. All right, let's go. First topic of the first episode of the fifth season, we will be talking about Bojo's War on International Law. This came out in the news recently, and it has to do with the turmoil between the EU and the UK about this proposed internal markets bill, which is currently before the House of Commons. And this bill attempts to ensure that following the withdrawal of the UK from the EU on the first of the year, as I said, that trade-related policies will be harmonized across the United Kingdom, England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Um... And what the problem that the UK was attempting to address in presenting this internal market bill was that once the UK does withdraw, uh, I'll say England from now on, maybe, or UK, to keep it more accurate, (laughs) um, there will be a legal void where mandatory EU rules used to operate, and that will then become subject to the internal markets bill. So what about what happens to the mandatory EU rules that were binding on the other member states like Scotland and Northern Ireland once the UK leaves the EU? For example, what would happen to the mandatory EU rules and regulations on food and air quality standards, um, which were, as I said, subject to mandatory EU law? Well, post-Brexit, the UK would want to have these issues regulated by the UK because they would want to have it 
closer to home, but they would want to have it harmonized. They want to have standards harmonized between the countries that they find um, with their brethren. So where certain issues were regulated by the domestic markets in the UK countries, now they will have to harmonize into one similar standard so that each country will have to accept each other's standard. So if there's a standard of a certain good that's to be imported, it would have to be accepted by all of the countries um, within the UK. Um, so it attempts, as I said, to harmonize these standards across the UK. But this has led to a related but pri primarily UK-centric dispute over whether this bill constitute a, quote, power grab by Parliament. Um, so whereas before these um, specific, the devolved governments, as they called them, or these smaller sovereigns, had a power to regulate their, their, quote, domestic or internal market, Westminster would now be given a veto power. So some people think that this would cause a race to the bottom. So since everyone has to accept each other's goods, um, then let's take an example. If the UK were to do a trade deal with the US, and according to that trade deal, the UK say that it would import chlorine-washed chicken, um, that would mean that all of the states in the UK would have to accept that standard and therefore these chlorine-washed chickens would have to be able to be imported into Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. Um, and so there would be this kind of race to the bottom approach where anybody seeking a trade deal, or specifically the UK, now it's without many trade deals, um, in order to gain access to more markets would accept lower standards of goods as they would have before, and therefore it would require these other states to do the same. Um, so certain portions, let's go into like the meat of the issue, certain portions of this bill authorize regulations that are explicitly and directly inconsistent with the U UK's commitment in the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, which is part of the UK um, withdrawal agreement. And in this um, bill, it provides for the application of a lengthy list, oh, sorry, the protocol of, provides the application of a lengthy list of specified EU laws, including customs and state aids and subsidy laws um, to the trade and regulatory regime for views in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland with no customs infrastructure between the two, meaning they didn't want to have that hard border between um, Ireland and Northern Ireland. So the bill authorizes the enactment of regulations that would be explicitly inconsistent with this protocol. So you have this kind of Brexit withdrawal agreement as a subsidiary, you have the, this Irish protocol, and then this internal markets bill would basically negate some of these or become inconsistent with um, this protocol. So to look at some of the sections of the bill that would be inconsistent, um, although it wouldn't be directly inconsistent, there are some powers that would be left within Westminster that could make it inconsistent. So section 41 of the bill provides for unfettered access to the UK internal market, um, but section 42 of the bill provides that ministers with the power have the power to disapply or modify the exit procedures to ensure this unfettered access. So to put that in layman's terms, if the UK were to leave, it technically per se would not have access to the internal market to the EU, but with this new power to disapply or modify their exit procedures, they could give themselves this unfettered access. Um, so you have other sections of the bill that um, have that same power embedded into the bill. So section 43 of the bill um, said that the Secretary of State could make regulations to disapply or modify the effect of Article 10 of the protocol. 
you have section 45 of the bill that provides that sections 42 and 43 that I said above. Um, so this is kind of saying that we know that we're going to breach this regulation, the, the UK withdrawal agreement, but um, we don't care. So section 45 says that those sections 42 and 43 would have effect notwithstanding any relevant international or domestic law with which they become incompatible or inconsistent. And that regulations enacted pursuant to those sections are not to be regarded as unlawful because of any incompatibility or inconsistency <laughs> with relevant international oh, sorry, and domestic yeah. law. That's how that works. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not legal, illegal because I say it's not illegal. State sovereignty. I know. I know. At its at finest. Its ma- at its <laughs> finest. So everyone has been criticizing this, of course, because it's saying that the UK has developed this insurance policy um, to be used that only if the EU's acted in an unreasonable matter. But the UK has asserted that the bill only violates the relevant treaties in a specific and limited way, and that there's clear precedent for the UK and other countries needing to consider their international obligations as circumstances change. Um, so if you look at Article 16 of the protocol, it says that there is a possibility for unilateral action to be taken by either the UK or the EU if the application of the protocol would lead to serious economic, societal, or environmental difficulties that are able to persist or to divert trade. Um, so basically, in that protocol, it says that either country could do, or the country or the EU could do that if it would cause problems. They should have thought of this instead of now using this as a justification to breach the protocol and the agreement. Um, but they have included language to that effect. So some have interpreted that it is possible for the UK to do so under Article 62 of the VCLT, which says this fundamental change in circumstances. Um, although that seems entirely implausible or that it would be you know, effective, that is one way that can be interpreted that the UK has the power to pass this bill. Um, other people have said that, you know, this, that they've only breached in this, quote, specific and limited way is meant to forestall a claim that the bill constitutes a material breach under Article 60. So it is not actually a material breach of the UK withdrawal agreement or the protocol because it's only violated the treatment in a specific and limited way. Um, so as you can see, there is the dispute laid out for you. And there is... Here we go back to why this, we're bringing it up on the arbitration station. There is the dispute settlement provision in the EU-UK withdrawal agreement that says, um, and the EU has said it would not be, quote, shy in invoking these legal remedies against the UK. <laughs> um, but in Title Three of the um, withdrawal agreement, there is the dispute settlement provision that says that they will have recourse to arbitration. And um, they have a consultation requirement in this um, arbitration agreement and they may request for an establishment of a panel that is made up of a panel chosen from a list of 25 arbitrators, which has yet to be established. Um, So the problem here is, is that even though the EU could initiate an arbitration for a breach of the withdrawal agreement or the protocol, um, you know, that arbitration would take quite a long time and the bill would not take that long. There is a possibility within the UK withdrawal agreement dispute resolution provision to say that there are temporary remedies available. So they could, for example, say that that um, act could not be implemented. That could be, you know, an injunction against the UK of doing so. But therein lies the issue. Um, so the, the I don't even think this is a, a dis, 
discussion to be had whether the UK is in breach because they clearly know that it is in breach. So the would would be would be in breach if the bill passed. Yeah. Yeah, they're right. kind of acknowledging they would be in breach by saying it doesn't matter if we're in breach. Exactly. Basically. And admitting Expressly. it because they put yeah. it in saying, yeah. like, even this is incompatible, it's not really... Oh, can you imagine that in, a, like, a separate investor state context where a state enacts a measure and on the record, like, in parliament, the head of state, so the head of government, I guess, says, we know this is going to breach the treaty, we'll do it anyway. In a specific and limited way. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. a slam dunk for any investor council. Exactly. Yeah, so when I was going through this, I was like, oh, okay, we'll have a discussion about whether the UK is in breach, but they are in breach. So, I love how the EU also is like threatening arbitration. I just haven't heard these two words in this order yeah. <laughs> for a while. <laughs> That's true. So I know exactly nothing about this, which I am embarrassed about, but I am sure the same goes for many of our listeners. Uh, so I'm going to ask on their behalf and not on my own behalf. Uh, under this under the withdrawal agreement, the arbitration mechanism, is it directly provided that both the EU and the UK consent to arbitration in the treaty? Or would the UK have to separately consent to arbitration if the EU wants to initiate one? Do you know that? Because otherwise, it's kind of an empty threat. No, like the UK can just say, thanks, but no thanks. We are not interested in arbitration. Mm-hmm. Right. I, you actually might be right because there's that consultation requirement and then they have to request the establishment of a panel. So I wonder yeah, and if the UK hasn't even nominated their arbitrators, I think the, U- the EU might have, although it has not been published, but the UK, we know, I think for a fact, they have not even like assembled their part on right. the, the list, the mm-hmm. panel. But do you think that would like vitiate consent? Yeah, because for example, in a contract <laughs> where you provide for, like, especially in construction arbitration, I'm just trying to see the difference here. When you have dispute boards, there should be standing dispute boards, and sometimes the parties have just not you know, set up the dispute board in advance, which is what you're supposed to do. And have they used that as a defense of... I've, I don't know. I've never, I've never seen it. I've seen a case where you know, I was involved in where they just set it up later. Right. And that's kind of how it happens. Really should have read the treaty before starting in this segment, <laughs> I'm realizing now, because I know what the PCA will administer. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that somehow, directly or indirectly, is tied to the ANSI trial rules or that the PCA might have some sort of subsidiary appointing function like if the uk were to say no mm-hmm. we're not gonna yeah, exactly. we're not gonna <laughs> provide our, our arbitrators maybe the pca will step in and do it on their behalf the same way they would in another like treaty based on central arbitration where the respondent state says no we're not going to appoint our arbitrator mm-hmm. right i don't know if so that's an interesting job for the pca i guess this is all i mean obviously this is diplomacy and the the law doesn't really matter here this is Posturing. The law does matter. You're saying they're <laughs> going to breach the international law. What are you talking about? Uh, what I mean is the law is not going to solve this. This is yeah. going to have to be solved through some other, like in another arena. We can think whatever we want about arbitration, but this is not going to be solved through arbitration where a bunch of arbitrators figure this out and the UK is then bound by it and all the problems go away. This is going to have to be solved politically, obviously. Right. We'll see it, what happens. Yeah, it pains me to say, but I think so. so Um, yeah interesting debate I mean uh, I've read in the news that um, not that it's relevant to any of this but I thought it was interesting to mention that Amal Clooney quit her (laughs) mission to the UK as a special envoy for uh, freedom of press for the UK because of their role she just said I read other people and senior lawyers in the Mm -hmm. UK government have also quit which is a separate and interesting discussion and I think parallels have been drawn in popular media to the Iraq war 
where the UK also did something that many lawyers working for the UK government were not really comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And the question is then, what do you do as a as a lawyer working for the UK government? Is it better to sort of dramatically quit your job uh, in in protest, or do you stay and try to you know influence the de- development of events? <laughs> yeah. And just for the students, this matters, and it is obviously a clear legal thing because of also Article 27 of the Vienna Convention. The withdrawal agreement is Mm -hmm. a treaty, and the bill, if it were to become a law, is a domestic law, and you cannot excuse your failure to perform a treaty with reference to your own law. That's like the first lecture of public international law. So I think this is for the non the public, the people who aren't that interested in public international law. This is why the people who are interested in public international law <laughs> think this is so provocative. <laughs> right. Thank you, Brian, for edu- edu- educating us. <laughs> yes, thanks, Brian. roundup of renewable energy cases. Now, this is not a new debate, but there's been so much going on over the summer that we thought it would be interesting to point it out. So, first of all, just a little bit of background, because to be honest, I don't know if everybody knows what are feed-in tariffs. (laughs) (laughs) Like in an elevator pitch, I probably couldn't. (laughs) In one sentence. So, a feed-in tariff is a policy mechanism that's designed to accelerate investment in renewable energy by offering, for example, long-term contracts. So it's usually like guaranteed grid access, long-term contracts, cost-based purchase prices. In a word, it's like a legal, in- like a financial incentive offered by a state to invest in renewable energy um, because the cost is, is more expensive. It's hard to be competitive. So a couple of countries, of course, are developing, you know, are encouraging investors to invest in their renewable energy sector. And I'm not going to go in too much detail here because um, there's so much to cover. But there's been more than 60 cases uh, currently still ongoing against Spain because of their change of legislation and feed-in tariff regime, etc., which has... Um, spiral into a number of claims against Spain on that basis. So why are we talking about this, you know, today? Uh, because there have been a couple of new cases, of course, brought against other states. And I'm going to focus in particular on three of them, Romania, Ukraine, and Italy. Um, and so hence the, the question I asked in intro is, are Romania, Ukraine, and Italy the new Spain? <laughs> <laughs> so Romania... Um, it's interestingly, um, let me start with the most recent news, is there's been a request for arbitration that was filed on the 17th of September of this year, so just a couple days ago. Um, it was It's an ECT case that is brought by 44 different investors. Huge claim. Bunch of Italian, Greek, uh, from Luxembourg, Turkish, Czech, Cypriot, against Romania. So first off, you know, you can see what kind of issues this is going to pose. <laughs> Sorry to talk about this again, but I can't, you know, do this segment without think- talking about the potential intra-EU objection that is going to be raised here. But I'm, I'm going to pause it here. I'm not going to focus on this right now. Also, ha- good for them that it's under the ECT and not under 44 different bits. Because exactly. that would have been an interesting jurisdictional debate. Yeah, <laughs> do we consolidate? Do we have the same tribunal, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, these cases 
raised so many different fascinating issues, to be honest. So this is in no way a thorough list of the issues, but I'm going to try to focus on the key ones. Um, so basically, what is going on with Romania? So claimants are arguing that Romania breached the ECT when it modified its incentives regime for renewable energy producers, which was built around green certificates. So green energy certificates were issued to these producers according to the amount of energy fed into the grid and then sold to energy consumers, which are required to purchase certain quotas of green certificates by Romanian law. And there was a 2011 law that imposed fixed quotas of green certificates for energy consumers. Um, in 2014, those quotas were changed when a new law allowed the government to fix uh, new quotas for each year. Um, so then naturally prompted the adoption of lower quotas and therefore decrease in demand for the green certificates. So the claimants argue that the 2014 law, as well as other subsequent modifications to Romania's incentive regime, breached the ECT. So that's one case. <laughs> There's another one where the request for arbitration was registered on the 19th of May 2020, a separate one, which is also an ECT case, which is the EP Win Projects uh, versus Romania, which is also an exit case. And it was brought by a Cyprus-based company. Also happens to be in the European Union. Exactly. <laughs> investing in wind farms off the Romanian coast. The ultimate investors are unknown at this time, but it concerns the state in incentives to investors also for renewable energy projects, uh, which began a, gradu a gradual phase-out after the 2008 financial crisis. So in that case, very similar to the solar cases, to be honest. The project reportedly received 118 million USD in financing from the EBRD, and became operational in 2014. And that case is the third renewable energy arbitration, if we can call it a REA, <laughs> against Romania at exit brought under the ECT. Um, there's another one, which is the LSG building solution, which was initiated in 2018 by a smaller group of claimants, and which is related to a change in legislation in September 2017, including limiting the number, again, of green certificates. So, Romania, be careful. <laughs> Investors are coming for you. Now, I'm not going to you know, speak too much about the Romanian cases because there's also an interesting development concerning another state, which is Ukraine. Now, concerning Ukraine, on July 31st, 2020, so again, let me say that all of this happened during the summer. <laughs> the Ukrainian president signed into force a bill on the amendment of Ukraine's renewable energy regime as well. And among other things, the law provides for, again, similar scenarios, significant cuts in feed and tariffs for renewable energy producers. Um, the re reduction of tariffs has been approved by the National Commission for State Regulation of Energy and Utilities. Now, it's a new law that has been um, in force, and it remains to be seen whether they will be any investment treaty claims. So there have been no claims that have been filed right. to date, right? But there have been a number of foreign investors that have already indicated that they were considering initiating arbitration against Ukraine in relation to the matter. Um, interestingly, just a little bit of detail on the Ukrainian um, 
context is that this new bill seems to be based on a MOU that was signed in June of 2020 with two of the leading industry groups in Ukraine's renewable energy sector. Yes? Memorandum of Understanding. Oh, yes, Correct. sorry. <laughs> Memorandum <laughs> of that, Understanding. I'm the only yes. agreement to agree. Non-commercial yeah. lawyer, I think. I no, no, Sometimes no, that's true. The that's acronyms true. must be raised when I don't understand them. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. there's someone else who doesn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no, that's too smart. No, 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 that's that's true. That's true. Sorry. Um, And um, but the understanding is that the memorandum of understanding has been introduced during the legislative process. But it's unclear whether foreign investors will deem that these changes are significant enough to warrant the initiation of arbitration proceedings. Um, So, you know, um, not all investors belonging to the two industry groups that signed that memorandum of understanding were in support of the arrangement. Um, and there's a third industry group, the Ukrainian Association of Renewable Energy, which accounts for approximately 40% of the participants in the market uh, who never signed that MOU. So, you know, again, new series of potential cases. And Italy now. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar that Italy has a bunch of cases already against yeah. them. But I thought it was interesting to mention the ESPF. Forgive me, I'm not going to say the next word because I can't say it. <laughs> Betelgeuse guns or something. And Co. Uh, versus Italian Republic, which is an exit case, which is, is it the first one? The first award in favor of an investor rendered uh, on September 14th. I actually, I'm not 100% sure if it's the first one again that was rendered uh, for an investor. But this Against one, Italy, you mean? Against Italy, yeah. Oh, right. Against Italy. And which finds clear and specific commitment by Italy to pay fixed feed and tariff. Um, there is a dissenting opinion by uh, Laurence uh, Boisson de Chazon, which, um, you know, is interesting. Um, and if I may, I'm not going to talk about the, whether or not there was a breach of, um, you know, the, the various treaty um, obligations and especially the ECT obligations. I will encourage you to read the very thorough investment arbitration reporter article on it <laughs> because it's brilliantly written honestly um, there's an award of 16 million um, awarded to investors plus interest and the tribunal was of Alvarez uh, Michael Pryles it's Australians you can oh okay sorry and Laurence Boisson Chazon who was appointed by respondent drink of choice Boisson Oh. <laughs> and what's interesting, what I am going to talk about, because I can't not talk about it, is that even though it's an ECT case, Joe, there has been obviously an objection from Italy as to the jurisdiction of the tribunal based on the intra-EU objection. More specifically, not only ACMEA, but the January 19 declaration, which also during the summer came into force. Ah, nice yes. segue. Exactly. So, Italy had asked the tribunal to terminate the proceedings in the wake of this declaration, um, and also, like I mentioned, the implication of the ACMEA ruling, and to suspend the proceedings pending the decision by the ECJ in several cases involving Italy's renewable energy schemes. The tribunal dismissed the request. Now, I'm just going to go through quickly a few of the arguments that they have raised, because I think they're interesting. 
Um, and this, uh, I think, right, is, is not the majority. This is the entire tribunal on this part. Correct. Right? That's very true. And thank you for clarifying that the dissent of Laurence Poisson Chazon is on the merits. Yeah. And on quantum, actually, but not on this. So this is all the more interesting. Um, so about the argument that EU treaties cover the same subject matter as the ECT, um, which basically means that European law should prevail over the ECT given the conflict of law, uh, law rules sorry, in Article 16 ECT uh, that gives precedence to more favorable set of rules. I mean, that's the interpretation of Italy. Um, I'm just going to pause here because it's interesting that they made that argument because the common finding of ECT tribunals is actually the opposite, that Article 16 of the ECT uh, actually allows the ECT regime to prevail over EU law, which is the exact opposite of what they were saying. Uh, for example, the Landesbank Spain case um, said that. So the tribunal found that Article 16 had an additive and not substitutive character. Um, and I quote that Article 16 provides for the rights granted under the various international agreement to both coexist and be operative. So it's not a question of giving primacy to an investment regime over the other, but yeah. to preserve the maximum rights available to an investor or an investment. That's been reasoned quite a few times. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also they added that read together with Article 26, it gives investors a choice of dispute settlement form. Which, uh, which evidences the, the intention of the drafter of ECT that investors select the instrument um, and related dispute resolution mechanism under which it would pursue its right. Um, with, the respect, with respect to the argument on favorability, um, I thought it was interesting to quote again the Escosol Italy case because it says favorability lies in the eye of the beholder, which I think is true, <laughs> right? Um, Another one that was interesting, which again, you know, these arguments have been made before, but um, is on the fact that uh, the ACMIA declarations did not interpret or modify the ECT. So they mentioned that the declaration of 2019 amounted to an instrument relevant for treaty interpretation under Article 31.2b BCLT. And when I say they say, sorry, it's Italy's argument. <laughs> but the tribunal noted this article applied to instruments adopted in connection with the conclusion of the treaty, so it does not cover a declaration issues decades later. Uh, with respect to 313A of the Vienna Convention on the Law Treaty, sorry because I said VCLT earlier, <laughs> which gives way to any subsequent agreement, in quotes, um, the tribunal ruled that it was inapplicable also because declaration the declaration is not an agreement and did not involve all the ECT parties. On the ACMIA case, they mentioned that it concerns investor state tribunal who would interpret or apply EU law without recourse to EU courts, but in this context of the ECT, the EU law was not applicable. Again, no big surprise here. Um, and, you know, again, they, they also said there was no incompatibility between EU law and ECT. Also, I did not know that in that case, the EU European Commission was uh, also filed an amicus curiae, but... Um, they made that argument on incompatibility, but Italy did it. <laughs> yeah, that happened. <laughs> and also, uh, one other thing is they were not allowed to come at the hearings. And the, Italy, the EU. Oh, the EU. Mm. And Italy asked if they could be a witness to interpret the ACMIA decision or on the ACMIA decision, Hilarious. and the tribunal refused. <laughs> 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 it's just interesting stuff. 
Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of other arguments like the Lisbon Treaty also doesn't modify the ECT and that the context and purpose cannot modify the clear wording of a treaty, which is clear in this case in ECT. Um, but yeah, imagine how much time and money was on these <laughs> objections, guys. I know. Yeah, so they were, they had to pay for And Italy's still making them. Italy's still making them. <laughs> Italy's not the only one still making them. Yeah. Probably Romania and Ukraine will make those. Um, There's a twist coming up now, and I'm, I'm only thinking about this now, listening to you. And I remember, the, and bear with me, because this is a long analogy, but when we talked about the Mozambique case, I don't can't remember the name, von Bessenglich or something, mm-hmm. earlier a season ago, mm-hmm. uh, where the investor in question was South African, and at the end of the procedure, uh, it was found that the treaty was, was not in force, and that's, that's why they threw it out on jurisdiction. And we talked about on the podcast about how weird it must be for an investor to argue against both its home state and its host state that mm-hmm. a treaty is in force, where both states signing the treaty agree that it's not in force. The ECT is obviously not covered by the agreement, but we do have a lot of bit cases, renewable cases and otherwise, that are still being brought by EU investors against other EU member states, where the home state of the investor... I read just the other week that a French investor has initiated an intra-EU mm-hmm. case, for example. Mm-hmm. And France is, of course, on the record saying that our intra-EU mm-hmm. BIT, at least the arbitration clauses, they are not valid. And now we have like a new frontier, I think, in the intra-EU disputes. Because now, like, what, 23, 24 EU member states are in agreement that mm-hmm. the intra-EU bits are no longer valid. Mm-hmm. The arbitration clauses aren't. And we still have investors bringing those cases. That kind of twists the fact pattern a mm-hmm. little bit for the cases to come. Right. But obviously the ECT is outside of this because it's not covered by the, the declaration or the yeah, agreement. Yeah, but you're, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you're saying obviously, but I mean, that they still made that argument, you know? They still made that argument about um, it being covered. And also the EU European Commission made that argument and is still making that argument. Um, so they were, uh, they had to pay for 60% of the cost of the other side. Oh, the Italy did. Oh, wow. Did they sub- was jurisdiction bifurcated? Um, that's a good question. And, oh, I guess costs, if costs were bif- like separate um, on that point. Because they're usually in, postponed anyway until yeah. the end. Yeah, but sometimes they'll apportion costs depending on the... Right, depending. Yeah, well, how much you win. Well, yeah, but if you say, well, jurisdiction, you brought up completely like spurious claims. Yeah. But that's also that. one of the reasons why, I think, because they right. said that, you know, they, they didn't succeed on jurisdiction. Um, and Still probably don't. Yeah, and all the merits, I mean, it wasn't like, a, you know, they didn't win everything, right. none of the investors, but the majority of the claims. Mm-hmm. And I think this is another sidetrack, and I apologize for this, but I don't think the dissenting opinion, I, I read this only when it came out, I have not looked at it since, it's not a dissenting opinion, Practically it's speaking. It's four paragraphs? In like footnotes, <laughs> right? Or it's not in like a separate decision or That's a separate correct. thing. It's just like yeah. annotated, basically. It's like added footnotes to certain points. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it's it made me think, actually, we should probably do a segment on the sense. I think we have at some point. You have? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> that was a long time ago, and a lot of stuff obviously <laughs> happened since. I, I don't mind. Ryan knows this. I love dissenting opinions. Yeah, that's his like favorite topic. <laughs> uh, but if I had an I, if I didn't tell you who dissented, I mean, you know, who appointed Laurence Poisson Chazon, you would you would have guessed, right, that she would was appointed by respondent because only mm-hmm. the dissents always come from the arbitrator that was appointed by the party who loses. Yeah, I think that's that's basically what we <laughs> talked about. That was part of the discussion. <laughs> when and how do you dissent? Was the yeah. 
<clears throat> but yes, it's true. It's not a dissenting opinion per se, but they call it a dissenting. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. just like, yeah. on the page. Yeah. It's not an opinion. It's more like a, mm-hmm. a statement of uh, mm-hmm. intent. <laughs> An MOU. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Memorandum of misunderstanding. Memorandum <laughs> of misunderstanding. So yeah, so that's it, guys. I mean, there's a, a lot of um, to, a lot to cover um, on this, obviously. So I would encourage people to read on to those. But there's definitely a pattern here. And Spain pattern. is probably happy. They have but some company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I think what's happening, kind of going like the commercial side of like this legal business. Is that people have seen these renewables pop up. It's now a popular thing. They know that countries are implementing these measures gradually over time from now into the future. So I think law firms are just chomping at the bit, waiting for, pun intended, uh, <laughs> waiting for states to enact these measures. And the second they do, they're like, okay, let's find every energy company, which I'm sure mm-hmm. is what happened in Romania, where they have so many claimants. Yeah. They just go through the entire energy sector. They're like, okay, this happened. Let us know. Yeah, it's almost exactly. like an ambulance chasing. Of sorts. Yeah, yeah, it is totally that. It is totally that, and <clears throat> and it's interesting because it reopens the debate, the wider debate, which is on states' right to regulate versus mm-hmm. legitimate expectations. Yeah, think, which you know We're is just true. Tearing through. That. <laughs> yeah, not just the renewable energy sector, of course, but more generally, whenever is in a state. You know, doesn't a state have the right sovereignty? The UK again <laughs> link up with our previous segment to do whatever they want, whenever they want. Well, we'll keep an eye out and update as we go. I think it's time for... That's right. <laughs> yes, let's pour some champagne because we're at a French lover. <laughs> exactly. And on to happy fun time. All right, happy fun time. And perhaps the silliest happy fun time in the history of a very silly <laughs> podcast. This is really authentic stuff here. <laughs> Which brings me to one caveat, because I've actually, uh, for maybe the first time, I've been listening through our backlog, uh, anticipating this fifth season when I've been out running. And I realized that from time to time, we, and by we, I really mean I, say some stupid things every now and then. And I think since no. this is the first, yes, oh. yes, 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 yes. Especially way back when, when I was still an academic, and I felt like I could speak. Oh, come on! <laughs> really? So like, oh, when I was an academic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, since this is the first episode, and we just opened the champagne, we should probably just again reiterate the general disclaimer that we are not speaking on behalf of our employers, and we are generally serious and thoughtful lawyers. But this is the podcast is not meant to be a serious and thoughtful thing primarily. So please bear with us. We record most of this live. We improvise. We don't always prepare as much as we would in a professional context. And I think that's what makes the podcast good. But I also feel a bit uncomfortable going through this audio record of us making very obvious mistakes <laughs> consistently. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, let's move on to the ISDS movie. And I will have you guys Google every now and then, and I instruct the listeners who happen to be in front of a computer to do the same, unless you are a movie TV buff and you know the name of every actor, uh, just at the top of your head. Right. You'll hear some, some keyboards uh, in the background, I think, when, when Sadie and Brian are trying to catch up. I don't really know what the ISDS movie is about, which we could also probably... What does ISDS mean? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, this was... So I said investor state dispute settlement in the intro, and had this been a written brief, okay. I would then have defined it at, as right. ISDS involved. So that Thank you. in the Thank future, you very much. you may yes. proceed. 
<laughs> I think the ISDS movie would obviously uh, at least there would be maybe some flashbacks to like the the birth of of this system. But the, the interesting part for us is the, the what's going on right now. I think the superstars that we right. know about and also what's ha- happening in Uncitral. Don't really know exactly how we're going to work this out plot-wise and what the tension is, but I'm envisioning a, a for and against, like system insider versus system outsider kind of uh, plotline. And we have to then, in the historical background, begin, of course, with Aaron Brokus. Mm-hmm. Do you know what he looked like? No. I think he passed away in the 1990s. We talked to uh, to Taylor St. John about this, obviously, a, a few years ago. who wrote a book about this, and he mm-hmm. is popularly known as the father of Exit. Right. Mm-hmm. And the role of Aaron Brockes in the ISDS movie, I have decided to cast Paul <gasps> Giamatti. Oh, good one. Definitely. One, one of my favorite actors, who I think can bring this gravitas. Mm-hmm. Taylor, actually, when we talked about this, suggested Robert De Niro in the role. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I could see it now that he's an older Robert De Niro. Yeah, yeah. But, but I'm still thinking. I don't really know anything like about the person Aaron Brockes, of course, but I have a sense that Robert De Niro will be too alpha yeah. to, to carry out this like <laughs> nice statesman, like a, a balding, nice man, which is like typecast right. Paul Giamatti, right. I think. Kind of like this brooding, quirky... Yeah, yeah. just like, you know, maybe... Sideways. I, I envision a limp. Like limping through the World Bank Ooh. offices, talking to <laughs> government officials. <laughs> I can't. I can't find a picture of him though. Like really, Aaron Brokers. Paul Giamatti or Aaron Brokers? No, Aaron Brokers. Oh, I just googled Aaron Brokers. Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. It's okay. maybe because your Dutch spelling isn't. Oh, maybe. On, on game. <laughs> okay. But the father of Ixid, to us, maybe not the father, but the person we most associate mm-hmm. in our generation with Ixid is probably Christoph Schroyer. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Who I guess you've both seen or met. Yes. yes. No more or less what he looks like. Mm-hmm. I have kind of a, a casting against type here. Obviously, there are a lot of tall, bald, sort of gravitas, statesman-like <laughs> actors. Mm-hmm. I would cast in the role of Christoph Scheuer, John Malkovich. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's a great one. Definitely. That is a great one. Really? Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I agree with this. You're two for two so far. Because I've seen him, I can't remember where, but in some TV shows. Could be, is it in... Billions or Succession, one of those like uh, New York-based dramas. He's playing a thug. Mm-hmm. I think it's Billions, where he plays some sort of like Ukrainian-Russian oligarch, basically. Mm-hmm. And he does accents now. That's oh, it. Really? Yeah, and he does it pretty convincingly, I think. And that's obviously a different thing. Doing a Russian accent, a lot of actors have done that professionally. That's like their bread and butter for a long time. Malkovich does it well. Stoyer is obviously Austrian and not Russian. And he speaks English pretty fluently. That's a great picture, right? It's yes, that is. Through yeah. Here. Yeah. Put, put, put glasses on John Malkovich and make him do a German accent, just a slight accent, yeah. and we have Christoph Scheuer That's yeah. in the flesh, yeah. I think. Good one. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So happy to hear this. The tough one, and here I might need some French input, oh. is if we're moving into present day and some of the superstars, some of the, the people who, who must be in any movie about ISDS. Of course... <laughs> Madame Brigitte Stern has to be right. cast. And I've been thinking about uh, Charlotte Rampling, Charlotte Rampling, who's British-French and maybe the most attractive woman 70-plus in the world. And I'm not saying anything about Brigitte Stern. I'm just saying that Charlotte Rampling <laughs> should be in a movie. Yes. Not bad. Yeah. You, do you think that could work? I think yeah, she could do a, a good French accent and she has sort of the professorial... I was thinking about Helen Mirren. Yeah, I mean, of course, I don't know if she can make the accent, but I don't know. Let me let me pull out a picture. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, I think 
just on on picture, I am absolutely with you. Yes. Okay. Now that you're googling Helen Mirren. But you're right. It, she doesn't have that Frenchness, though. I, exactly. Yeah. I think uh, yeah. Brigitte has this yeah. like rock and roll air yeah. about her. That uh, yeah. the very stateswoman Helen Mirren. I'm not sure. I mean, she's a good actor. Ah, <laughs> oh, looking at Meryl Streep now. Yeah. Same thing though. There's too, too much grace. So yeah. Almost like a, a, no... a very British American Anglo-Saxon. You're right. It's a bit you're British. right. No, Charlotte Rampling's definitely better than she has to like you know yeah the the she could she could smoke smoke (laughs) (laughs) i love that yeah no it's a great one i fully are there um she's blonde are i british but you know they can do a lot of things with with (laughs) i'm just trying to yeah that's a great one while we're casting graceful uh older impressive women Obviously, Gabrielle Kaufman Kohler would have to be cast as well. And my personal favorite is Glenn Close. I had her written down as well. That's true. Glenn Close? Yeah. Or is yeah. Glenn Close, but I'm going to give you another one. Oh. I'm just going to type it down and show you. What do you think? Oh, okay. <laughs> Sold. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, yeah. Jane Fonda. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's just there's a lot of... The, we have some problem with age, though, possibly. Isn't Jane Fonda, like, over 80 at this point? I'm thinking yeah, Jane Fonda 10 years ago, 15 years ago, she could pull off a, a GKK very convincingly. But mm-hmm. she's, yeah, that might, that might be true. She also doesn't age, that woman. She doesn't look 80, to be honest. She's, no. She is over 80, for sure. But she really does look like, you know, it's the eyes or something. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those movies where they're, like, older talking about their good old days. Ah, uh, yeah, you can always play around with it. Since we don't <laughs> have a plot, you can play around with the timeline pretty liberally. Exactly. <laughs> like a league of their own when they're, like, older talking about our baseball days. <laughs> yeah. And GKK is, of course, uh, uh, in, and that's Gabriel Kaufman Kohler again to define the <laughs> Yes, exactly. The you didn't even define yet. She is, of course, uh, somewhat involved in the Uncontrolled Working Group, which mm-hmm. I think is, you know, it's, it's not really a courtroom setting, but it still has some drama when you have the states negotiating. And I think that would have to be a part of this movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, one person who speaks a lot in the Working Group is Salim Mulan, QC. Mm-hmm. And here I am going to go out on a limb and cast a Brian favorite for mm-hmm. Salim Mulan. I am thinking someone who isn't even an actor, but sometimes that's what you have to do. <laughs> I'm thinking uh, Tan France from Queer Eye. Oh, my God. Oh. Wait, I don't have a picture of Salim Mulan. <laughs> no, but you don't oh have to, because he looks like Tan France. <laughs> oh, my God. Totally. <laughs> that's so hilarious. Yes. No makeup needed. No yes. anything. Just oh, my right God. Salim is such an amazing person. I just... I You're saying Tan France isn't? No, I'm not saying that. I just hope he... Uh, please do not take offense, okay? Anyone to what we're saying. No, again, this is silly. Oh my gosh, now that I... <laughs> it's the hair. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, no, it's so much more than that. It's hair. also the air. I think you can do yeah. the, the really graceful... Three, Tan yeah. France in a three-piece yes. suit working walking through the United Nations. Easy. That's amazing. I think... Uh, bang on. Tough one, who is also occasionally showing up in the Unsettled Working Group, and this is maybe the hardest one to cast, is, is Charlie Brower, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I've been thinking a lot about. And from from a state perspective, he's kind of, you know, the, the bad guy who is, you see that he is, he is nice and he has worked for states and he's sort of involved in this, but he's also like... You want him to be a bad guy, you know, the mm-hmm. sensitive bad guy, the, mm-hmm. the good bad guy, which is an interesting character. Yes, exactly. So I've been thinking... And they also share the first name, Charles Dance, 
Who's that? Let me see. If you've Sorry. seen Game of Thrones, you've seen him. He's also, I think he's played about fifty oh. different. Oh my gosh! Yes, he looks like such a baddie, though. Good yeah, boy. but like same way though. You, you can see that he he has. Oh, maybe not when I'm looking at the pictures now. I was gonna say he has soft eyes. He doesn't have soft eyes. He's like the baddest, baddest. What's it like? The family of what is it called? The vendor. In the in Game of Thrones, yeah, yeah I really should know. I gave up on Game of Thrones. <laughs> I don't know. But he's done it on, th- on theater as well in the UK, and I think basically his whole screen career has been bad guys. But that bad guy that you also feel for, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying again that Charles Barber is a bad guy. <laughs> no, obviously. but it kind of comes across when you're saying that. No, yeah, no, not really. No, he looks nicer. Yeah, he's got kind of... But good nice. actors can work with yeah. what they're given. And this is the yeah. subtext. Give yeah. me a better Charlie Brower cast. His son, Chip Brower, apparently. I don't know. He looks exactly like him. I don't know. Is that his son? I don't know. But someone called I... Chip Brower looks exactly like him. Um, I don't know. I was also thinking about Alan Alda for Lion Room. Alda was in MASH and also played a presidential candidate on the West Wing. He really has that gravitas of Charlie Brown. He's very tall, which is... Okay, what well, if you put, with some judging, Brian Cranston... As Brower? As Brower. Brian Cranston... Of, like, make him stretch his, like, acting punch and, like, play a bit older. No. Could no. do. No. Isn't he, got- like, a ginger... Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. They gotta like yeah, you gotta make him older. Yeah, he's got the kind eyes. Yeah, he does look like an arbitration lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe not partner with Firm X. Um, Maybe not quite. You need to have someone do like a full transformation to get that Oscar nom. But yeah, but I'm telling you, casting is not easy. (laughs) It's a profession in its own right. Obviously, (laughs) am I being um, crazy to suggest Robert Redford? No, oh, we need a Robert Redford in this movie. Same problem with Jan Fonda. He, he, he looks like he's 60, but he's probably closer to 160. <laughs> he's very, he looks too rock and roll, I feel. Yeah, you're right. But maybe that would be like a, you know, career-defining role for him. Right. I, I have the perfect casting <laughs> Unlike his other movie. <laughs> <laughs> the ISDS movie is going to yeah. go on. Go he got, on. He's on, got Robert. 19 Oscars, he but when he did the arbitration movie. Bit. That's yeah. when he took off. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of rock and roll, this is the one that I'm most happy about, partly because their names are so similar. Who's that? In the role of Jan Paulsen. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Ted oh, Danson. Ted Danson. Oh, wait. wait I of Cheers fame and other movies since. The Carby and Yes. Oh, oh my gosh, of course. <laughs> yes. They, they are very, very, mm. they, they look very similar. Oh, you're skeptical? Yeah. No, no. He's 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 got. It's not your best. Okay. I was just happy because yeah. it's so funny to say Ted Danson as young. He looks so American. You know, is he that American? is true. Yeah, he is. He is. He's very, and he, he lives in LA. I guess. Yeah. No offense, Brian, but yeah, you're right. He looks. But he's not, there's. Yeah, he looks like an LA person. When you see that, which Swedish yeah, exactly. actor would be? There's uh, there's not like a very well known Swedish actor that I would put in this role either. It's kind of hard to get that silver fox thing. That's yeah. the problem. There are a lot of Swedish actors who could pull it up, but they are all bald. Right. What about Richard Gere? Oh, yes. I see. <laughs> oh, and I'm also realizing now, we know this, obviously, but there are so many more men than women in this movie. We're going to have a problem getting We're going to talk about women. We're going to talk about women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on. Yeah. Okay. That could be a good young Paulson, actually. Yes. I'm sold. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Ted Danson. Oh, I didn't even think about that. No room for you. We have Richard Gere. <laughs> I, um, yeah. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Paulson's 
you know, good Swedish. on the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> He's Swedish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> With emphasis on ish. Right. Exactly. We had, you suggested, Brian, you probably forgot about this when we talked about this months ago, as a Gary Bourne. Uh-huh. You suggested Howard Stern. Oh, my yes. gosh, yes. Yes, yes. Right? I've jotted it right? down, too. I didn't even remember you. Might. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, that's a rock and roll. Yeah, rock that's, and roll, that's totally hair, fine. Definitely yes. going to show up in jeans. Like, yeah, same. I think they even have the same way of speaking, probably. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my yes. God, good. Pat, pat my own self on the back. <laughs> what else? You had another really good suggestion. Oh, Helen Hunt as Wendy Miles. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. That, that, that yeah. really resonated with me to the extent yeah. that I remember it four months later. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah, that, that is great. Look at that. Of course, yeah. That is perfect. I was thinking about uh, Yes, Bina Pitani. Oh, yeah. It might be too cliche because I just know one Iranian like actress. It's beautiful. I can't even say her name properly. Gal Shifte Farhani. If you, I'm going to just pull it up so you guys see it. Gal Shifte it's, this is good a, audio. Oh, sorry. She just looks like her um, on her, you know, younger picture. Oh so. yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So. This one, yeah. really good. We gotta have some timeline issues, both with the actors and with like the actual ISDS development. Yeah, when we need to have more have... diverse like people. Did you think about Judge Yusuf? Um, I think we had a discussion in the WhatsApp thread about Judge Yusuf, but I don't remember who was suggested. Have you thought of someone? I was just thinking. I mean, what? <laughs> you were thinking like a Hollywood executive, like, we, we, like this Denzel is be... Washington, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure we can come up with better than that. I just did the pale male and stale, like all, all <laughs> yeah. the old Hollywood actors right. and the old arbitrators. That's not gonna. That movie is never gonna be made, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, on that note, I have, of course, this is my last and most obvious casting choice, as Meg Kinnear, Greg oh. Kinnear. Oh my gosh, that is hilarious, of course, of course. I actually thought about Meg Kinnear, let me see what I had noted. Well, it has to be Greg Kinnear, it's like, you know, uh, I'm Not There, the Dylan movie, where like Kate Blanchett plays Dylan, and a bunch right. of people play, play Dylan, and like different, different aspects of Dylan. We're great at this. <laughs> we, we, I know. Every casting director is like, yes. Every every casting director listening to this podcast. Yes. No, we need a movie. We need an ISDS movie. It's you know, we need to to talk about this more seriously. I mean, this is exactly in in a in accordance with your request to de-glamorize arbitration for this year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that New Year's resolution. This That's is the literal true. opposite. Casting a Hollywood movie. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like inviting Hollywood stars to play arbitrators. We have to make it more international, though. It can't just be American actors. Everyone's no. going to be like, come on, guys. You can't fix Hollywood. Only. You can't fix Hollywood? We, we can't fix America, Sonia. <laughs> One thing at a time. Oh, come on. I'm There's sure a- I could. I, I have to think more, but we need to have some Bollywood actors in there. Yeah, that's true. Christoph Waltz. So, so many German Oscars. Oh, yes, of course. Definitely. Yes. There's actually a new Oscar like regulation that in order to be qualified for a best picture, you need to have some di- like a level of diversity in your cast. I haven't read the mm-hmm. rule, but or like what is considered oh, yes, as diversity. That. But yeah. we have a long time ago. I think when the pledge first came out, basically we we have signed the pledge as a podcast 
So if we actually end up casting this movie seriously, we have to abide by the pledge and do our best. I don't think the movie casting aspect of arbitration is in the pledge specifically. I think it's more about arbitrator appointments. Right. But we should, uh, you know, the spirit of the pledge, we should probably comply with. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, we could go on this for hours, shouldn't we? Yeah, exactly. Maybe we we should continue our champagne, turn off the podcast, and continue this. (laughs) People, send us your suggestions. Yeah, exactly. This could be a a Twitter thread that would undermine all of our careers collectively. Yeah, and maybe we also need us to be in the movie at some point. Right. Like, you know, the arbitration station guys who started this whole thing. I think we should be there. Have you never considered who would play you? No, I honestly have never. They did that at my old firm at Manhammer. They, like, went around when you started the firm that was like an icebreaker being like who would play you in a movie and you it was like such a dichotomy of the people that actually tried to pick people but picked very handsome people thinking that they were <laughs> that's that the handsome. problem yeah and then other people who did it as a joke um who picked like completely awful people and i thought it was it was a funny so who was you? oh i picked daniel day lewis <laughs> so obviously an older version of myself yeah. it also just went with the best actor you could think of yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I mean, I'm not going to suck in my movie. <laughs> but, like, this... doesn't he do, like, one role a decade? Because he also yeah. like, goes into, like, three years of training that role. And everything. Yeah. I mean, he's my favorite actor, wow. so it's also biased. Joel Hoover? No, you don't want to say. No. I would love Paul Giamatti to play me as well. <laughs> so you also want a good actor. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe Greg Kinnear. <laughs> Greg Kinnear. A bit. That was a good one. He um, plays both roles. Yeah, exactly. Right. No, but also, while we have our listeners' attention, before we sign off, we should thank I, a Reporter. Yes. And we could, I think, at this point also advertise that I, a Reporter in the flesh, uh, or at least as represented by Luke Eric Peterson, is going to come on the show at some point during this season. And we're going to talk about this and that with this famous sponsor of ours, who is, which we're proud to say, the sponsor also for season five. You all, our listeners, know about I, a Reporter. Uh, you will know more about iReporter if you keep listening to us because we, all of us, use iReporter frequently and rely on the reporting both in our professions and when we want to just stay up, up to date in general in the field. And you can yourself, of course, find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to iReporter by visiting iareporter.com. Follow us on at the ARP station or email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. And start this trend on Twitter. Who would you like to see in your ISDS movie? And who did we forget to cast? There's a bunch of oh, famous arbitrators out there. Of we... course, we forgot to cast. You forgot to cast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not my segment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would have just segment. put like a lot of women and you know people more diverse. Let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mea culpa. Let's uh, see you all season two. Oh, sorry, episode two, season five. Exactly.